Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and on today's episode, we are adventuring up north to look for ghosts in the Emerald City to do a little shopping and, you know, keep an eye out for flying fish. Good morning, spooky babes. How is everyone doing out there today? I hope it's amazing because, you know, you're amazing. I'm still slightly recovering from the vampire ball and not a surprise for anyone that is a longtime listener of the show. I went and got sick right after. That's why you only got a spooky snippet last week, but I'm mostly recovered, so that's good. The vampire ball went freaking amazing. I am so proud of my witches that came together for the ritual. If you were there, send me pictures. I don't know if anybody actually got video. I would love to see it. I was very proud of it, so I don't know. We'll have to see. Anyway, this is the time of year that everything changes to Halloween for me already. I'm getting ready for Midsummer Scream in July, and that was like my whole plan was that. But I do have a practical magic theme pop-up at Kronk Art and Curiosities June 2nd. And then I picked up uh, New Orleans Oddities and Curiosities Expo this year again. I haven't been out since COVID, so I'm like, I'm so excited. That's going to be on June 10th, I believe. I believe it's the 10th. Almost 100% sure it's the 10th. So, a couple places to come and see me if you're in the area. Uh, if I sound a little weird today, I'm a little bit rushed. We have a tornado watch for our area at the moment. And that's one of my absolutely irrational fears, considering I've never been uh, anywhere near one, really. So, um, I'm going to get through recording pretty quick, and then hope we don't lose power or anything like that. So, do it before it gets bad. Anyways... Did anyone else watch the Boulet Brothers halfway to Halloween celebration on Shudder? I freaking loved it. It has definitely gotten me in the mood, let me tell you. I'm going to definitely be watching it again in the shop as soon as I get in to work on hats and witchy stuff. I've been kind of just staying at home focusing on the podcast stuff because it's convenient. But yeah, if you like campy horror and drag queens, this is the one for you. Let me tell you. It's so goofy. I love it. I even got my husband to watch it. He didn't like it as much as I did. But, you know, it wasn't bad. So, we are starting to come to the end of our Pacific Northwest tour and the end of the season before the summer break, so I can start on the fall episodes. I have three Seattle stories to tell you. 
we didn't get as much time in Seattle as we would have liked. And sadly, this year, I won't be going back with the Oddities and Curiosities Expo. I'm pretty bummed about it. Portland is now a two-day show, and I just didn't think I could do both. It was a lot last year. As much as I loved it. Don't get me wrong, I loved every second of it, but it, it was a lot, especially toward the end of the year. I'm thinking of planning on it for next year, though, because I would really love to go do some more exploring up there. I'm obsessed, absolutely obsessed, with the idea of trying to get some whale watching in. Damn it. I've never had a chance. So, hopefully, next year. On today's episode, we are talking about just some of the ghosts you can encounter at the Pike Place Market, the world-famous Seattle market where they throw giant fish back and forth and they have hundreds of vendors and little shops and flower stalls and food areas. It's so cool. This place is so freaking awesome. It has such a rich history and I am barely skimming the surface here. So, I'm focusing on the ghost of Arthur, Arthur, there we go, Goodwin, the spirit that hangs around Ghost Alley Espresso, and the numerous ghost children that have been seen around the market, especially in what is called the Down Under. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, maybe what they call a smog, which is an Earl Grey tea with espresso latte and espresso latte. It was pretty tasty. I think that's what I got when I was out there. Anyways, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. One of the places that is an absolute must for us when we were there to visit while in Seattle was the world famous Pike Place Market. If you have ever seen anything about Seattle, you have seen the market. This is where they have the famous fish throwers, which were downright awesome. Not gonna lie. I did expect more fish though, but I was told that since COVID, they had removed a lot of the open-air food places like that for safety. But the flower market, you guys, I, ugh, I, it was so cool. It was so pretty. That, that was dangerous for me. I wanted to buy everything. And it, it, it was, it was fairly inexpensive. It, it, way more inexpensive than it is here. Let me tell you, it, it, it was great. It almost doesn't feel like it was built as a market though. And don't get me wrong, this is a whole district. Like it's huge. Like where we were for most of it and where most of our stories happen, it's in the five story big building 
that is um right in front of everything it's like facing the water and everything my phone is supposed to be on quiet oh oh as we start thundering that's awesome great anyways um but yeah it doesn't feel like a market can you guys hear the thunder Oh, God. Uh, it feels more like a theater with all of the lights and the columns and the tall archways, like an old school Victorian theater that you walk in to watch a play. Almost like the market had taken over an older building, but apparently that's not the case. I found that out later that this has to do with one of the resident spirits there. The market opened on August 17th, 1907. Oh, I wonder if you guys can hear the thunder. I might have to pause for now. Okay, let's try that again in between our rain bands. The market opened on August 17th, 1907, when eight farmers showed up to sell their produce and more than two thousand people two thousand showed up to buy one of the legends from that day is that a farmer hid behind his little makeshift cart that he had and just placed a tin can out so the hordes of shoppers could just throw money in that and i really hope it's true because it's really cute some stories I read said it was specifically an onion stand, but either way, adorable. Some kind of produce. The next day, after hearing about how well the first day went, 40 farmers showed up to sell, and it continued to grow. At the height of the market's popularity, 3,000 daily workers showed up to sell along Pike Place in the arcade and in the five levels of retail space below and along Western Avenue. I was not prepared for how big this was. The five le levels of little boutiques and flower vendors and food stalls. I just, I just did not understand how big this place really was. And it's a weird, unique bunch of buildings. The halls are not level. They randomly ramp up or down, and then they randomly curve or narrow. It definitely feels like something that's built, been built on forever. Um, we were there before most everything opened because we had to go set up the oddity show. So, we got to wander the halls by ourselves for the most part. It kind of felt like when you're in elementary school and for some reason you are in school really early or really late and mostly by yourself and you get to wander. I don't know why, but that was the vibe. Maybe it was the old tile in places. I, I don't know, but that... 
it just had that vibe to me. It's that really exciting, like, it, I don't know, it was, it was strange. Since this was the only time we had to explore, we have decided that when we do Seattle again, we are getting a little Airbnb or something down near the market. So we can go down to the market every day and pick out what we're going to cook for the night. We definitely did not leave enough time for it. Again, it's huge. I, I, I gave it a morning before we had to go work. I was very wrong. I'm telling you, you guys. So the Pike Place Market is a national historic district. In the district, you will find fishmongers... Day stall tenants, leaseholders, restaurateurs, farmers, and more than 400 permanent residents. It is the longest continually operating market in the United States and attracts over 10 million visitors a year. The market is a valued part of Seattle life with fresh goods. Sorry, I'm listening to the thunder again. I'm like, no. Uh, seasonal produce and artists and craftsmen offering homemade goods. The Pike Place Market has been called the soul of Seattle, with all of the people coming and going through it and its importance to the community. It makes sense that the Pike Place Market would have a few ghosts hanging around. While we wandered around the quiet market, I wanted to see the gum wall. I feel like it is a rite of passage to visit and put a piece of your own chewed up gum on the wall. It, it, it's just what you do. My husband, however, was not amused as I was by the whole thing. He could have done without it, but we did it anyways. While we were looking for the wall, we discovered Ghost Alley Espresso. And with a name like that, I had to partake. They also had gum for sale, which was great because I had forgotten mine. Ghost Alley Espresso is tucked under one of the staircases underneath the fish throwing area right next to the gum wall. It's only a walk-up place where you just order from a window. Although, according to the very nice barista, People don't listen and try to walk into their kitchen all the time. That's why there's a roped off area with a creepy doll sitting on the stairs. I had to ask if this cute little window was haunted. The barista chuckled nervously like, and looked around like to make sure nobody was listening to them. Very, they said. And let me look through a book entitled Seattle's Market Ghost Stories, which was written by Mercedes Yeager, Yager, who is also the one that started Ghost Alley Espresso and ran a ghost tour of the market for many years. And there are so many stories. Apparently, Mercedes grew up in Seattle for the most part, and her family has had a stall in the market forever. So she has all these wonderful stories and memories and insight. It's so good. I had to buy a copy of the book. 
It's a quick little read. It tells the history of Seattle and the market and weaves in the ghost stories, both from the beginning of the market to modern day people that have passed away but still visit. So, it it's lovely. It's such a cute little book. Um, and this book is where most of today's stories and information come from. So, The Resonant Ghost at Ghost Alley Espresso is author Arthur Goodwin. Arthur was one of the market's first managers and a designer of the buildings who had his office very close to where Ghost Alley Espresso is. Arthur's parents both worked in theater. But from family accounts, Arthur was not a very good actor. So instead, he went into architecture. Though he never really gave up his love of the stage. Arthur designed the interiors of the market to look like a theater. If you look up while walking in the market, you will see thousands of light bulbs in the arcade by Pike Place Fish. At one point, there were over 20,000 light bulbs that were lit up 24 hours a day. Part of this was because it was inspired by the theater stage. Part of it was for security. And the other part is apparently to rival Luna Park an amusement park across the Elliott Bay in western Seattle. You may also start to notice the pillars and columns throughout the market that look like carved museum pieces. They're just so ornate and it's just, it's so lovely. I do think it's appropriate that it's raining again as I'm talking about stories in Seattle. Arthur was known to be a very well-dressed gentleman, always dressing in a top hat to check on his vendors. In the book, Mercedes recounts one time that she was contacted by the family of Frank Goodwin, Arthur's uncle, who was one of the founders of the market and is one of the other resident ghosts just down the lane in Alibi's Pizza. They were having a family get-together and wanted a ghost tour of the market. And apparently a lot of this family came in, like so much that she had to give two tours. So I think that's kind of cool. When the family came in, they brought tons of documents and old pictures of the two men, including old film footage of Arthur dancing on stage and his top hat and tails. It's so cute. Apparently he loved dancing. In the book, there's a still image of the footage and it just seems like Arthur was just, just a real fun man to be around. He just, just seems cool. I hope he was cool. On the Ghost Alley Espresso website, they have this lovely excerpt from Mercedes. Just kind of giving a small backdrop of Arthur. 
and it reads, When I opened a Ghost Alley Espresso in 2012, it was immediately apparent that something or someone was present there. On the east wall of the shop, I used wire as well as nails to secure things to the walls, wrapping the wire both around the nail and any painting or fixture I put up because they would fall or even fly off the nails. Electronics proved problematic and still do today. Total sidebar real quick. Apparently, if, according to the barista, that if the baristas talk about Arthur, that's when things happen. If that makes sense. Like, it was just, so she was like making sure he wasn't listening. The iPad register and even espresso equipment would behave in ways as though someone unseen was interacting with them. Things fell, very well secured things fell. Even today, the shop is routinely cleansed with sage and mediums are brought in to talk to the spirits. Arthur may be one of many, but he is the one that makes himself most known. Baristas at the shop have felt the presence of a man in the shop. One barista closing up saw the apparition of a tall man in a hat standing in the doorway. This drawing, which I'll get a copy of the drawing, was done by a young child that had visited the shop. I received an email with this drawing attached. It was explained to me that this child saw a man inside the shop. He was wearing a dark suit and hat. She drew this image with a cage close to him. Her explanation was that he was trapped. However, when she was asked is he was a ghost, she replied no. And the wings that she drew on his back were an indication that he was an angel. For me, when I saw it and compared it to the pictures I have seen of Arthur, like the one of him dancing, I knew this was the resident ghost at the shop. Because the shop is built into the attendance room in the 1908 men's bathroom, it is easy for me to imagine it was a place that Arthur frequented. At the time, he would have frequented the space daily. Perhaps he would have had his shoes shined or picked up a newspaper and sat in the window. It is easy to imagine all the reasons that space would give his soul comfort and with the dedication he had to Pike Place Market, it is also easy to imagine him connected to the buildings he helped design. Trapped by his own choice, I like to think, but also very much an angel in the Pike Place Market history. I just thought that was lovely. Arthur's office was in the economy market at the corner of First and Pike on the second floor. He is said to still be seen in those windows. 
In the winter months, he is seen standing at the window with a notebook in hand, possibly planning out the next day vendor placements. Sidebar. Apparently, here's the thunder again. Even though he couldn't act, he was really good at mimicking any dialect he heard. And I bet he had a lot to choose from considering how many different people had immigrated to Seattle during that time. But I just, I think that's kind of a fun thing. He is also seen in the Economy Market Atrium, a huge open space created by gutting the original building. I got lost in Pike Place Market a lot. <laughs> There's lots of twists and turns and sloping floors. So you think you're on one floor, but you're on another. And like the elevator doesn't go like one, two, it, it's confusing. Um, and it was just really kind of weird, but for some reason, I was always able to find this atrium area. To be fair, it probably was because there was a street musician hanging out there playing and you could hear him echo Nirvana and Pearl Jam covers down the hall. Cause you know, Seattle. In Mercedes book, she recounts how her parents had a shop in the market located in the atrium and had witnessed Arthur many times. Her father referred to him as the dapper dancer. Through the 1940s, a dance hall existed on the top floor of the economy market, right across from Arthur's office. I bet it was a freaking amazing to go dancing there. Oh, I bet it was so fun. I bet you had like views of the ocean and Puget Sound and then all the lights. I bet there were a ton of lights. Oh, I bet it was fun. Arthur would attend on Saturday nights. He is still seen there, dancing on the dance floor that no longer exists. Like, dancing on thin air up above. I think this is quite a lovely image. Just this dude floating in midair, just dancing. There is also a theater at the bottom of the economy market called the Market Theater. They are said to have a ghost that they also call Arthur, who also dances on their stage. And I bet it's the same Arthur. Arthur was a really fun find. But honestly, I was there looking for ghost children. That's what everybody kept telling me, was look for the ghost children. Apparently, the down under, like the, the bottom floor. I don't think it's the, is it the fifth floor? The first? I get so confused. Has a lot of them. Mercedes writes so eloquently about them in her book. So I'm just going to read you this passage. The market was built into a hillside providing five levels of retail space below Pike Place. 
The lower levels are known as the down under. In these levels, shopkeepers and customers have seen ghost children. Some even name them. Until 2010, a store selling beads had occupied the address of 415-1501 Pike Place. It became retail space after a federal post office in the location was closed due to financial embezzlement by workers in 1973. When former owners of the bead store, Ram and Nina, took on the lease, they inherited the beads, counters, register, and the ghost of a young boy. They called him Jacob. Nina was the first to notice strange happenings in the shop. At night, she organized all the beads into their proper containers. In the morning, they would be jumbled up and moved. One day, while she was having a particularly emotional phone call, a strand of beads went flying in front of her from a hook on the wall. She felt as though someone was trying to get her attention and her mood quickly changed. An employee of the bead zone, which Ram and Nina called their store, described walking through the shop one morning while trying to decide on a necklace to wear during her shift. To her amazement, a necklace hanging on a hook flew off and dropped at her feet. As she picked it up, she noticed that the blue at the center of the center stone was the exact blue of the dress she was wearing. When I brought tours into the bee zone, I often asked the group to make a request of Jacob to do something. It is rare that anything happened, but on two occasions, things did. Once, two strands of red beads went flying off the wall as though someone had pulled and thrown them. Another time, a group of young Girl Scouts asked him to do something, and within minutes of the request, the entire room began to smell of wet hay and horse manure. It was so unmistakable that one of the girls asked, where are the horses? In a short film made by Arthur Goodwin in 1927, there are about five seconds of footage in which his camera catches numerous young boys lining up on Pike Place to work for the day. They stand with small carts at their side ready to help customers haul their goods through the market. Other children worked long hours in the stables around the market. Orphaned children found refuge by working for the stable masters. In exchange for their work, they received blankets and hay on which to sleep. Doesn't seem like a totally fair thing, but okay. Jacob may have been one of those early stable boys, remaining close to where he lived and perhaps died. Number 415 is a challenging place to have a business. Not only because inventory keeps getting moved around, but because of its location and awkward layout. On the north side of the shop is a room that had been sealed since 1973. 
when the post office moved out. The room is almost as large as the entire shop, but with an elevated floor that makes it unsuitable for commercial use. The room was first noticed one morning when the owners of the bead zone were parking their car on Western Avenue below. They looked up at the back side of the market and noticed that there were six large windows on the exterior of their bead shop, which was quite strange. Inside the bead shop, there were only three. There appeared to be an additional space north of their shop. Anticipating finding that additional space, they knocked on the north wall only to discover that one area sounded hollow. Upon breaking through the wall, they found a large room and the three windows they had seen on Western Avenue. Below the windows were small piles of items. There were piles of beads, piles of pennies, and packets of beads marked with their own handwriting from just a week before opening the sealed space. How all of these things got behind the sealed walls remains a mystery. One Halloween, Jacob's story was in the newspapers in Seattle. The newspaper article made a clever assumption that the beads resembled marbles, and that was why Jacob liked them. Young children started to visit the shop with marbles in hand. One child left a basket of marbles for Jacob with a note that read, These are for you. If you like them, let me know. That is absolutely precious. The beat zone, now permanently closed, moved to a different space on the lower floor. One day, two customers were inside that former location standing next to a large table. On the table were containers filled with different colored beads. After several minutes of looking through the containers, they asked Ram if there were any red beads. He told them to look again. When they looked back, every container had one solitary red bead in the center. At number 415, a shop called Merry Tales is now open. The owner has an area devoted to Jacob for Jacob inside. A small cart and basket with toys now sits in the middle of Jacob's room. I love that. That makes me happy. On the third level of the Down Under, you will find an odd wooden ramp that doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the building. It doesn't. I remember this ramp. I thought I had pictures of it, but apparently I don't. I have to see if Jordan does. It doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. It's an old horse ramp that is still visible today. Like Warren worn limbs and aged skin its wood and uneven surface hint at the decades it has been in use photographs taken at the base of the ramp often have orbs in them some could be explained as moisture or dust 
but there is one solitary orb that reappears in pictures despite time or season, traveling up and down the ramp. The orb has been seen moving between multiple cameras taking a photograph within seconds of each other. At least five different ghost children have been seen near the ramp, including a young blonde girl that leads lost children back to their parents. Several people swear they have seen a young boy with brown hair and no eyes. At 319, the ghost of two small children are thought to be responsible for breaking a glass case that held doll furniture. The doll furniture was found on the floor amongst the shards of glass, neatly arranged, pieces stacked on top of each other. The owner could not explain this discovery. Every night, she used two locks to secure the front door. Neither of the locks had been disrupted, and there was no evidence of a break-in. In 1999, the Butterworth Mortuary in 1921, oh, sorry, at 1921 First Avenue was sold. As they cleaned out the old basement, they found a series of shelves with urns on them, numbered and without names. What little records remained showed that they were unnamed children that died in 1918 and 1919. The flu pandemic hit Seattle October 2nd, 1918 and brought tragedy to the city. Approximately 50 million people died worldwide during the outbreaks of 1918 and 1919. The illness killed people in their prime of lives, and it was so contagious that public gatherings were outlawed. Getting more weather warnings. Yeah, it kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? It killed within days of infection. Those had to be, those that had to be out in public wore six layer gauze masks. In that year, the city of Seattle also had an outbreak of diphtheria and many children died in that outbreak. According to health department, department reports in 1918 close to 13% of Seattle's population died. During that time, the Butterworth Mortuary would have been very busy. Adding to the deaths was tuberculosis. Seattle's efforts to fight tuberculosis were considered the worst in the United States in 1908 by the U.S. Office of Public Health. Tuberculosis continued to be one of the leading causes of death in Seattle for the next 10 years. In 1911, Seattle opened the Furland Sanitarium to treat tuberculosis patients. It remained open until 1973 and was located 12 miles north of downtown Seattle. 
At the time of the flu pandemic, childbirth and infancy already had a fair share of medical complications and many deaths. A family was especially vulnerable if one member caught the flu. Parents risked their own lives if they kept a young child sick at home. During the pandemic, quarantines were set up in hotels around the market. Legend has it that children who are seen in the lower levels are victims of Seattle's flu pandemic. In November 2010, at a paranormal investigation I attended in the lowest level of the market, the sound of children running was heard by the entire group. It was coming from above us. One person went to investigate and found that the area was locked for the night. A fire door and a chain fence secured it. We concluded that no living person could have made the noises. During the investigation, EVP recordings produced a child's voice saying, I want to catch him. Security guards in the market have also heard the running and the sound of children's laughter in the lower levels. So thank you, Mercedes, for that. I, I just, I don't, I could not have said it any better. So that's why I read it to you. The energies in and around Pike Place Market are definitely mixed. The contentedness of Arthur and the sadness or mischievousness of the children are only two examples. Like I said at the beginning, I barely am scratching the surface here. Mercedes' book has definitely given me so many more places to check out and ghosts to look for the next time we're there. I, I really highly recommend the book. And I will pass on this bit of traveling wisdom that everybody gave to me when I told them we were going to Pike Place Market. Watch for flying fish. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hartshorn. If you are interested in any more pictures, info, and my sources for this week's episode, hop on the website at myhauntedlifepodcast.com. But for like literally everything, check out the Patreon page. It's your one-stop shop for everything My Haunted Life that I promise to also update very, very quickly. Maybe in the time off, but it's going to happen, I promise. Where you can also help support the show for as little as $2 a month. You know, if you like the show, just, you know, throw me a couple bucks. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. If you have any information about today's episode and you want to tell me or a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can write me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all at myhauntedlifepodcast. While you're there, please like and follow and comment. It honestly makes my day. <laughs> <laughs>
Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this week's show. I'll see you all next week on our continued Seattle adventure. And until then, stay spooky. Mm-hmm.